The Film Jive podcast is made possible by Audible.com. Sign up for a free 30-day trial and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash filmjive. That's audibletrial.com slash filmjive. Welcome to the Film Jive Podcast. We are recording this episode on May 21st, 2014. My name is Zach. And I'm Andrew. This is episode number 69. Where we're... Ow! All right. well, I'm glad you did it instead of me. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Louis Malle's 1974 French film, Black Moon. So with that said, Andy, would you do the honor of reading the plot synopsis? Sure. As a civil war between men and women rages on, 15-year-old Lily escapes captivity, seeking refuge on a hidden estate deep in the lush, wild French countryside, where she experiences a reoccurring number of mysterious encounters with nude children, breast-fed elderly, incestuous twins, and a talking unicorn, amongst other surreal events. And the longer Lily roams the estate, the more she discovers about herself. Ba-ba-ba. So, Zach, what did you think of Black Moon? What did, what was going on? Well, I wanted to. I, there's this quote from Louis Mall okay. in regards to Black Moon that I I thought about reading before we got into this, and he okay. says, "I don't know how to describe Black Moon because it's a strange melange, opaque, sometimes clumsy. It is the most intimate of my films. I see it as a strange voyage to the limits of the medium, or maybe my own limits." Okay. Well, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, I agree with it. Okay. After I saw this movie, it's very uh, polarizing. Yes. You, you know, it's hard to exactly make out what it's attempting to say, if it's attempting to say anything. Mm-hmm. And then you go and you read all these things about the production behind it and that Louis Maul was kind of approaching it as um, an exercise almost in cinematic automatic writing where he was just – which doesn't actually make sense because automatic writing – is when you're not consciously thinking of ideas, you're just letting your hand do the the writing for you. Yeah. Whereas it's more, I would say he's attempting more of a stream of consciousness type of thing here, which I, I do think they're two different things. But Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. Yeah. You read things where he says, every time I came up with an idea that seemed to be attempting to structure a narrative, I would throw it out and start over. But after watching it, I did feel, and I do this with a lot of movies we talk about, but this one in particular, I felt like I needed to go and read other people's reactions. So, you know, I read some very enthusiastic reviews, but didn't really provide any context as as to why they felt so enthusiastic about just, this movie is crazy and I love it. 
or, you know, really negative reviews that are kind of denouncing it as pretentious nonsense. Um, what I think is interesting about, about Black Moon is that it definitely, at least for me, it challenges what your definition of cinema as a concept is because it doesn't follow any kind of traditional narrative uh, structure and it doesn't have any kind of real comprehensible dialogue. People do speak, but it seems to be in some kind of invented language uh, apart from the main character who does speak English, but she gets very uh, cryptic responses back. And there's no exposition beyond maybe the few opening minutes where you get kind of this framing environment of this war between men and women. Visually, it's not really a movie that you can make associations with with other films. I think a lot of it is rooted in literature and mythology. And I think unless you're really well-versed in some of the subjects that this movie is diving into, it's hard to really uh, begin to crack the code that it's presenting. Um, I mean, I've read a lot of things about how it's it's a very Freudian exploration, which uh, I agree and disagree with depending upon what people are suggesting is Freudian. Because if, you're, if you look at it as a Freudian exploration into adolescent sexuality, I don't really agree with that. If it's a Freudian adventure into the interpretation of a dream, I might be more open to that um, because it seems to be a film that the central character is kind of always the spectator of the actions around her, which I think is very true in dreams. And then by the end of the film, she becomes a participant, but that by that point, I don't think it's really a dream anymore. Uh, so yeah, what did you think of it? That was like a aimless rant at nothing. I don't really know where I was going there. It's a, t it's a tough movie to talk about. It is a tough movie to talk about. I think a, a lot of what you said is pretty true. Um, I agree with you. I looked for a lot of, uh, to read about the film and, I there's not of, a lot of really good... No there's, no, there's not, and I kind of found the same thing you did. People either love it because they love it, and, or they hate it because they hate it. There's really no real reasons for any of these things. In a way, I think some of the stuff that Louis Miles said about the film, it, I do think kind of reeks as pretension a little bit. Well, in in what way? In the way that he was deliberately wanted to make an obtuse film. I agree with that, and that statement is where I question when people say it's a dream, this mm -hmm. film is a dream. The problem that I have, and, and I feel this way about a lot of films where they're labeled as dreams is that the very action of trying to construct something as a dream negates its ability to fluidly move as a dream because you don't, you're not consciously constructing your dreams as you're sleeping. It's something your subconscious is yeah. doing. Yeah. So the very notion of saying, I want to make this feel like a dream and we're going to do this and this and this, it almost negates that attempt. And yeah. I don't, and I also think that in some of the reading I've done, people say that it's just a movie that is to be experienced. Mm -hmm. You know, every movie is to be experienced. Experience, I don't right. disagree yeah. with that. But I do think that there is a clear thing he's attempting to do just because the movie is so repetitive in its imagery. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very repetitive to the point where he's trying to make a statement, definitely with these, with, with what he's showing. I don't know how it successful, successfully is at kind of showing 
that's mm. what he's trying to say. And I think that goes further in that the very there is really very little written about the film where it is trying to where it adequately explains what's going on or what he's trying to say. And he's never really came out to say what he's trying to say, as far as I know. So I don't know how successful he was at what he wanted to say. No, he he does take the approach that everything that somebody needs to know to understand the film is in the film. And mm-hmm. that he, he had said that he thinks cinema kind of is behind other forms of artistic expression because people always want to know the answers and you know and understand mm-hmm. what a film yeah. is trying to communicate and and what he what he had said i think was that you would never go to a museum and look at a painting and then drag the painting to the mu- the painter to the museum and demand that they explain to you what their painting means so he he feels that films don't really need to be analyzed and understood it's kind of ironic because he was a film critic before he became a film, right, film right, director. Right. Um, but again, that whole statement, I think, kind of reeks of pretension as well. Um, I'm pretty sure I've even said on Film Jive, I don't care if a movie makes sense. I don't really need that. And I do believe that a lot of people, that's what they expect from a movie. And if it doesn't make sense, that automatically makes it bad. For one thing, I don't think this movie's bad. I enjoyed the film. I enjoyed it mainly for its uh, imagery. I thought um, there were some incredibly, really striking moments in the film. But I do think that this film is a little pretentious, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I and I think his um, mouth statement about whenever he was coming to, as he was developing it, whenever he got to a point where it seemed like he was developing a plot, how he would throw it out. Again, I think that's a very pretentious way of doing it, and that's not really even the right way to do a stream of conscious writing. No, well, the greatest literary example of that is obviously Joyce's Ulysses. And the way that I've come to understand it is you you write and you write and you write, and then once you've completed what you've essentially wanted to do, then you can go back and edit. But you don't really edit yourself as you're in the process of writing. You do yeah. it in retrospect. So the very act of composing something and as you're composing it, constantly removing things, um, it doesn't really support his it doesn't he seems to contradict his yeah, attempt kind of... of what he's trying to do, I guess. Yeah. Um, I do look at this film as very much of an experiment that he wanted to accomplish. On the whole, I don't know how su- successful he was at whatever he was trying to accomplish. Um, but again, as I said, I don't necessarily think it's a, a bad film. The one sequence that really stands out in my mind, because we were talking about this early before we started, there's, I watched this about two weeks ago. You watched it, I think, last week. And we both said, there's really not a whole lot we remember about the film. Right. One moment that really sticks out in my mind, though, is the moment with uh, the the um, the the bird getting in the house. I don't remember if it was a hawk or an eagle. Now I think it was a hawk yeah. getting in the house and Joe Dalsander chasing it. Like I felt that was in an, in an incredible moment. And there were a couple other moments that were like that that I felt really stuck out stood out. Well, the photography is by Sven Nickvist, who yeah. For anybody that is listening doesn't know the name is was Ingmar Bergman's cinematographer for almost the entirety of his career, and the film looks phenomenal. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting film from a visual perspective because it's a very drab looking movie. It never, mm-hmm. I yeah, it's mainly earth tones. Like earth. their intention was to never, um, you would never see the sun mm-hmm. at any point in the film. That's what they wanted to accomplish. But yeah, it it does reinforce kind of this concept of 
the forest kind of being this place of repression, I guess, mm-hmm. for her character. But also magic in a way. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. See, um, in the look of the film and the imagery is, when you were describing how you said it was it had more to do with mythology and literature, it kind of surprised me because I was thinking mythology and painting because I thought the film was very painterly in a lot of the setups. Mm. And even some of the lighting, I felt, was almost um, had like a naturalistic look to it of of, of painting. Especially when you get into the interiors, it seems yes. like all the the warmth of the spaces is either coming from fire or mm-hmm. it's just coming from the colors that are already present in the space. Yeah. Very rarely does it ever feel like there's anything really all that stylized about it that isn't authentic to the environment that they're in. Um, another thing that we should mention is um, when talking about this movie, I think you have to at least mention this is. Um, the parallels to Alice in Wonderland. Well, they're everywhere. <laughs> that run throughout the movie. I mean, one, she's a blonde girl. But even going further from that, I thought that Joe D'Alessandro and his, and his sister were Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Mm. Um, especially since they didn't. he didn't speak. He sang occasionally, but he never actually spoke. Well, she doesn't either. They both only, they only ever express themselves through either song or his humming. Yeah, which makes me think of dumb as in being unable to speak, so Tweedledum in that regard. I'm aware of who jo- Joe D'Alessandro is, but I've never seen any of the Warhol movies that he's in. Okay. They're phenomenal, all of them. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but he's he was an interesting actor to watch. One, from what I read, he was not Maul's like, initial choice for the role. He He cast Alexandra Stewart, who plays the female twin and then he was looking for someone that looked like her mm-hmm. um and the person that i guess he initially chose wasn't able to do it so then he had d'alessandro come in and this goes for i actually really like all of the performances and and also knowing that louis maul was greatly flu- influenced by robert brisson mm-hmm. yeah uh the performances in this film did feel very reminiscent to me the way that Brassam would use actors in his films where he he would literally call actors his models yeah because there's no dialogue um there isn't a, a clear sense of who these people are in relationship to one another all of that has to be expressed through their physicality the thing i thought with joe d'alessandro was that i wasn't so much thinking about his relationship with his sister but more so that he seemed to embody sort of this idealistic presence of, for Lily's view of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like the ideal sort of uh, Prince Charming type of figure. Yeah. And he's he comes and rescues her from these various situations. And when you were talking about the sequence with the hawk, my feeling was that is where her image of what this place is is kind of being corrupted because suddenly – he doesn't present himself as such a heroic person anymore. No, no, he doesn't. Um, and then what immediately follows with the two siblings attempting to kill each other for, mm-hmm. it's, it seems like suddenly this place, you know, what's happening on the outside of this environment with this war has infiltrated this environment. Mm-hmm. So now this gender conflict is continuing further. And she can't escape that reality, basically. Yeah. It's kind of interesting how you um, noted that he was that he could be looked at as uh, like um, Lily's idealistic man, man like the, mm-hmm. 
and that he wasn't the original choice from Mal because of his background, Joe Dal Sanders' background as a male model for Andy Warhol. And he's also famous for doing a lot of modeling nude. Mm-hmm. And he has kind of a an Adonis body, if you've ever seen him nude. Not just yeah, in he's that almost, he's a He's a got well, some very feminine yes, features he does. to him, though. I mean, he's very androgynous looking. Especially in his, more so in his face, I think, than yeah, the rest of yeah. his body. Because, like I said, he has a rather, um, well, for lack of a better term, I guess, kind of like an Adonis body. Mm-hmm. Um um, it's his, just I, the thing yes. I would th- that would be interesting is that um, when you see him from afar, mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm saying is it's almost like if Joe D'Alessandro, if you looked at him from afar, he could kind of present himself potentially as looking like a woman. Oh, especially you, you with you could his, make that especially mistake. with that hair that he had. Right, he had right. a rather luxurious mm-hmm. womanly hair, and there were other movies where he did kind of play. It was an androgynous relationship sort of thing. I believe he made a movie with uh, Jane Birkin, who is a female, but has a kind of an androgynous look as well, where they have a, I believe, a love affair. And it's kind of the whole idea of the androgyny of both of them. Hmm. For one thing, I think him choosing to cast a female first and then look for the male is interesting in, mm-hmm. I think, what he's trying to communicate about the space that this is all happening in anyway, that it's very uh, matriarchal. Uh, that it's kind of ruled by femininity. Yeah. Well, especially that house. You know, yeah. the, the house and the... Yeah. But I, I I read that he, Maul himself, has said that they're incestuous. And I don't know... I didn't, really I didn't feel that, that that was well communicated. I didn't all. either. I didn't, I didn't pick that up. There, you, there's, you, it's clear that um, there's some kind of relation between the two of them, but it's not established whether it's sexual or not, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what do you think of all of them being named Lily? Do you think that's anything other than just being odd for the sake of being odd? Or do you think these are all different ways that we could view this one character? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a moment, and this is where suddenly I started to question everything, was she runs into that pig and tumbles mm-hmm. over, and then the children start attacking her, and then there's a jump cut, and they're not there anymore, and she's yeah. swinging at nothing. I had that during that same moment. I was thinking, is this really happening? Yeah. Well, it it's the first time where he presents the concept that maybe this isn't actually the, or at least the people in this space are not really there. Right. And I don't know how I feel about it. Cause I don't know. For me, it happens at a point in the film where it seems odd to now establish that. Mm-hmm. Like that seems like something that if that is what you're going with, that you would communicate um, more repetitively than in, in cause it's only, it only really happens once if I remember it correctly. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I can't think of another, I can't think of another time that happening. Yeah. So then if they're all named Lily, does that mean that one is her id, one is her ego and one of is her super ego. Yeah. And as she's maturing, you know, these things are kind of disappearing or whatever. I mean, I also was just confused in general by the fact that they spoke through, well, it's not really sign language. It's like, uh, he how does he talk to her? He like he's touching her shoulder over and over again. Yeah, I think like, so. Yeah, but I didn't exactly understand what that was about either. I wondered, especially while watching it. Um, Drew Alexander has a very uh, New York voice, and in you know Paul Morrissey's Dracula and Frankenstein, he uses it kind of for humor. 
that he sounds completely out of place. Okay. But knowing that Mal didn't initially want him, maybe that's the reason why the brother and sister Lily don't speak because Dude Alexander's voice well, wouldn't have sing. worked at all. Yeah, but that's not his voice. Right. But it's interesting that he can sing. Yeah, but he can't, yeah. There is a sense that the dubbing is so bad mm-hmm. and I almost felt like he was intentionally keeping it out of sync to keep things disoriented. Yeah. When you first see him, I don't know if that was actually him singing. Well, they, that is, yeah, because it doesn't even, it doesn't really attempt to mix his audio in with his environment, so it just no, sounds yeah. like an audio track. Well, it's also because the first time we see it, don't we, he's far away and the voice sounds very close. Yeah, he's like trimming a tree or something. Yeah, but it. she's seeing him out of a window. Mm-hmm. And so he's farther away and the voice is so close that I didn't even think it was supposed to be him. So. Yes. What do you what do you think the movie is saying about feminism? I have no clue. I, I don't know. Well, I did some reading on this. Yeah. Because uh, I'm not really well-versed in terms of, you know, the feminist movement in France in the 1970s. <laughs> Well, uh, you're not? No, no. And I guess at that time, I mean, there was women liberation going on all over the world at that time. But in yes. France specifically, they seem to be fighting for um, the rights to contraception and to abortion. And that they could, uh, they would have the right of an autonomy from their husbands. Okay. There were also, you know, there were some politicians, female politicians who were going on hunger strikes because of the lack of female political presence in France at the time. Um, this is It's also interesting, though, that in the time that this movie would have been made, uh, from what I went, read, that a lot of French feminists were approaching sort of their activism through writing and philosophy and literature and film theory. Um, so it wasn't so much that they were protesting violently in the streets or anything like that, which is kind of what... I feel like he seems to be suggesting in some sense that this was a very uh, a violent political period where people were kind of at war with one another. Mm-hmm. And then I also came across the term ecofeminism that was coined by some French politician at some point in the 70s, which is that ecofeminists believe that there is connection between women and nature. And that has to do come kind of from their nurturing care um these are the same people ecofeminists are people who draw connections between the moon cycle and the menstrual cycle and the same thing with like childbirth and creation and stuff like that so i i didn't know if he was almost it almost feels like maybe it's an ecofeminist film that well, and, in some what ways. i was gonna say when you mentioned that um what makes it interesting though is that the lily that we're following, the young lily, seems to be kind, seems to be at odds with nature, especially uh, like the flowers that she steps on that scream in pain, and her conversation with the unicorn that she doesn't understand, and these are so she seems to have a doesn't seem to have a connection to nature. It seems to be a mystery to her that she can't grasp. Right. Well, then I when I read that, then it made me rethink maybe the ending of the film, and then mm-hmm. she accepts. She accepts that role with nature because yeah, of her relationship with the unicorn. Because honestly, if I just look at it on its surface, and I'm just wa- I'm I'm saying if this is about women's liberation, 
and I'm just watching the events that are unfolding. Yeah. I don't think it's a very feminist film because it it almost presents the idea at the conclusion that she is just taking her ma- maternal role in society by breastfeeding mm-hmm. this unicorn. So yeah. it sa- it seems honestly like a very antiquated sort of ideal by the end of the movie. Yeah. I don't know that as a visual it's a very strong representation of that. Um but I'd read a lot of like this is movie a sexual allegory about a woman's awakening or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's all there. I agree. But I almost look at it more on a, a general sense because I don't know that that really takes into account the fact that there is this war between men and women into that idea. Because my, my feeling almost was that, you know, he takes the gender conflict and kind of just pushes it to its extreme for one. But then also it almost feels like, and this is where I was trying to figure out what Louis Maul was saying when he was saying it's his most personal film. I started thinking about children that grow up in war-torn countries and the fact that when you're in that environment, a lot of times you're forced to mature at a very young age. You have to grow up and take responsibility for things much sooner than people who don't kind of exist within the heart of those conflicts. So I almost thought maybe she's attempting to escape the reality of her situation. And then by the end, she has come to realize that even in this space that seems kind of protected from all of this violence has been intruded, that she can't hide from it. She has kind of accept the reality of her world and she has to kind of be an adult now. Yeah. Okay. And so that was where I thought of when I'm thinking if Louis Maul is claiming this is the most personal movie ever made. I'm assuming Louis Maul grew up in France during World War II. I read that he graduated high school by the time he was 15, which I don't know how – that's another thing. I don't know how ridiculous that is for the 1950s. In, yeah, I don't know. I don't know either, but – you know. And, he started making films at a very young age, but there's that. So there you go. I don't Another thing about the film that I thought was kind of interesting is that uh, the young Lily, she, there are certain moments where she is kind of uh, sexualized, but it's with her legs. He has certain like loving, loving shots of her legs throughout the mm. film. And um, there's a uh, French painter, Balthus, that when you look at his paintings, it's, B-A-L-T-H-U-S. When you look at his paintings, they look very uh, similar to some of the imagery of her laying sprout out on a bed or a chair with her uh, with her legs out. Yeah. Very similar. Um, so I'm assuming that's where he was going for. Um, well, even one of the Balthus paintings is in on the wall. Is it? Okay. In the bedroom, yeah. So what, what do you think that means, if it means anything, the sexualizing of the legs? As opposed to some other part of her body, like one of the more traditional, for film at least, one of the more traditional uh, sexualized body parts of a woman, like her breasts or her uh, bottom. Well, I mean, I do think the French, though, when I think about the human body seems to, they focus on uh, less traditional anatomy than I think Americans do. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking about like Hiroshima Monomore. But there's yeah. a lot of emphasis on like the joints and things like yeah. that. Um 
The thing that I thought was interesting was that as the movie continues, she becomes more exposed physically. Yes. Yeah. Um, so she until the end, out, I mean, our, our last well, she's shot, burying yeah. her chest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she starts out in the trench coat with the hat, kind of disguising her femininity, and then as yes. she progresses, she kind of is losing layers of clothing, or her blouse is becoming more and more unbuttoned. But getting back to the sequence with her at the fireplace with her legs, I didn't take that much away from it uh, beyond that he's just choosing to fixate the, on the legs because I guess if you're thinking sort of in sculpting terms, the legs sort of are a image of perfection, especially given her fair skin complexity. And um, mm-hmm. But beyond that, I did see that sequence almost as if it was her daydreaming what it would be like to lose her virginity for the first time because especially because of D'Alessandro's appearance who's treating her very gently he's innocently seducing her in front of a fire but then that daydream is quickly interrupted by the responsibilities that his character has and then it's kind of out of her control yeah i mean again i mean again if it is about a young girl becoming more uh becoming a sexual being i mean i guess you could argue that the first before your you know a, a woman's breasts develop her f- first uh s- sexual pot- part that men notice i guess are bare legs yeah maybe and, w- and what do you make of the uh one of the one of the final shots of the film is when uh the turkeys and the the sheep fill the don't ask me this question <laughs> i don't know I thought that was a great image, but I don't really know what what it, what what it means. What do the turkeys symbolize, for instance? Unicorns, snakes, mm-hmm. those all have sort of easy. Uh, you can make through lines well, that easy, directly like leave them easy to phallic symbols and things like that. Um, and even just the image of a serpent goes yeah. all the way back to something like Adam and Eve. I mean, right. you can make yeah. clear allusions to those things. Even even insects. I mean, there's the image. Yeah after she's abandoned her car and she's laying in the grass and he has all these lingering shots on the praying mantis and stuff. It seems like that's kind of where her senses are being awakened in a sense. She's becoming more acute to her surroundings and she's starting to notice things that she wouldn't necessarily normally. Yeah. There's something very sexual about even the praying, I mean, if you've seen Nine Months with Hugh Grant and Julianne <laughs> Moore, where they have sex with praying mantis, you know what I'm talking about. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, that, I think last episode we said to do your homework, you had to watch Nine Months before Black Moon. Yeah, yeah, we did. Which I didn't get a chance to rewatch, so that may explain why I don't have the answers. That's true, that's true, that's true. So yeah, those things are easier to kind of distinguish but then he, when he starts kind of presenting pigs... Like throwing curveballs at you. I'm not exactly sure if it's just this is an environment ruled by nature. or I, The one thing I thought about the sheep was that in the background of that image, there's a hanging man. And I don't know if the sheep, when they attack her, they identify her as a woman mm-hmm. who are probably the people responsible for that man's death, yeah. perhaps. So they are lashing out against her because of her sexuality. Mm. But, I mean, turkeys, I don't even think, are addressed until that image. They don't even really show up. I don't yeah, think. I can't rem- I don't remember them anywhere else but there. <laughs> so, again, I mean, it's uh, that's another thing. Is he? Uh, 
this is a personal thing that I don't really agree with, but he eroticizes the wilderness. Yeah. I don't look at the wilderness in that way. Yeah, I don't either. Um, well, we should say that this movie, uh, Black Moon, was shot at his house, at Louis Mal's house, so he lived in a more secluded rural area than, say, you or I ever have. Maybe he has a connection with wooded life way more than, like, two city dwellers do. So maybe we just don't have that same connection to the eroticism of the wilderness that he does. Well, I did I did grow up when I was a kid in the country. Did you? Okay. Yeah. I lived <coughs> out in the in the boonies. Okay. So I okay. used to always... run around in cornfields and stuff. Okay, I've always lived in the city, so not, it's not the same thing as the French no. country. No, 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 it's not. But well, one 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 of my explanations for possible uh, for the turkeys at the end is uh, kind of goes back to what he was saying. Whenever he was getting um, to a point where a plot was developing, how he would throw it out. Maybe he's just doing things. Maybe he'd just go, wouldn't that be neat to have a scene, a shot with a bunch of sheep and a bunch of turkeys? Well, that that is one thing that I did discover shortly before we started recording. The way that he shot this film, he didn't shoot it with the intentions of how you see it now. Mm-hmm. He shot and shot and shot, and then he constructed the movie in the edit. Okay, around what he shot, okay. And he even had a version that only was 60 minutes. Okay. They released the film, or they screened the film, and it wasn't well-received, so he went back, and he cut another version that was only 60 minutes long, and then he was encouraged to just leave it the way that it was. Now, I would like to see a 60-minute version. I'm, of, I'm upset of, that it's on the Criterion, or at least. I feel like it's not about making sense, but mm-hmm. it, it would just it would be a more cohesive experience. Yes. And if, if he feels that the other 40 minutes that are in the film he didn't like then what are they doing there i guess yeah um i know you called it pretentious i don't really look at it i don't really consider it pretentious i mean my feelings towards pretentious films have to do more when they're derivative i don't have a problem with a filmmaker experimenting and trying something and maybe failing because to me even if I don't, I'm not enthusiastic about Black Moon in the way that I am other films. It's definitely one of the more interesting watching experiences mm-hmm. that I've had, and I, I like the movie. Well, when um, I said pretentious, I didn't mean it in a in a bad way. I don't miss, I know it's kind of uh, when you say someone's pretentious, it's kind of a negative. But I don't necessarily always look at it as something negative. Um, I think most experimental films, by and large, are pretentious just because they have to be. To want to experiment like that, you are kind of being pretentious. So there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I think you've seen more Louis Maul films than I have. Okay. Because I've only seen three. I've seen this, Elevator to the Gallows, and My Dinner with Andre. Let me think. I think I've only seen three as well. Hold on, let me think. I've seen Elevator to the Gallows, Zazie, Dan's La Metro, and this one. Which, Zazie, is one of your favorite movies. I love that movie, yeah. Now. He is somebody who is directly associated with the French New Wave. Yeah. So, you know, his contemporaries are people like Godard, Truffaut, René. And it's interesting to me because he doesn't really seem to fall into that category or share as much in common with those filmmakers. Even as experimental as this movie is, he's much more of a traditionalist than Godard or even Truffaut, perhaps, to some extent. 
I guess I just find it interesting that he's associated with those filmmakers because he's he doesn't seem to be as nearly as overtly political. No. And... Um, well, he was part of that Kaiju Cinema critics. No, group, no, 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 so no. He, he wasn't. wasn't I thought he was. Them. No. Okay. Uh-uh. I thought he wrote. I thought he worked with them. Like he, he was a he was a uh, reviewer, but he never actually wrote for that magazine. Uh, okay, I see that he had nothing to do with them. Okay. And his critical work, I guess, doesn't really fit in with the others either. Hmm. Interesting. One thing I guess you could say is Elevator to the Gallows does fit with other early French New Wave films in that it's a genre film. Because when I think of early, say, Godard, with, like, Band of Outsiders, Breathless, Alphaville, and some of the other ones, um, Francois Truffaut, Shoot the Piano Player, things like that, they are kind of, like, genre films. Yeah, but the only thing about, and I haven't seen Shoot the Piano Player, but Godard's films almost seem to subvert the genres. Yeah, they're almost, they happen to be crime films, but there's, the crime itself isn't what's important. They're not plot-driven. Right. By the tropes of the the films that they're Yeah, in. yeah, yeah. Whereas, at least in watching Elevators to the Gallows, like I said, he seems to be more interested in just exercising in the trope. Yeah, it's more traditional. I mean, maybe, I guess, maybe he's more like Truffaut, because even Truffaut gets, I would say, more conventional. Yeah, he does. The longer he works as well. Yeah, he does. I kind of found, uh, for me, the three Mal films that I've seen, the main character are women in each, in each one. Because I even think in Elevator to the Gallows, I think the woman, the female character, is the, the main character, although it's been a while since I've seen it. I haven't seen My Dinner with Andre, which has no females. Well, well, well it's Sean. <laughs> Who? Wallace Sean. Oh, Wallace Shaw. <laughs> He's a female? I didn't realize he played a woman in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, okay. Well, then that goes with it, I guess. But I, uh, but in other films, I think the, in The Lovers, the females, the main character, and so forth, where it does seem like Pretty Baby, which is a movie we were talking about beforehand, the main characters are women. I think in Atlantic City, the main character is a female. That's kind of interesting, I guess, that it seems to be from two guys that really aren't all that familiar with his work, that he does seem to have more female-led movies. I agree. I think they explore that in very different ways from one another. Yeah. He does seem to be interested in exploring the sexuality of women Mm -hmm. at different periods in their life. So, uh... Do you think any of this led to uh, his 15-year marriage to uh, Candace Bergen? I think everything led to Candace Bergen. Yeah, what do you think of that? <laughs> I didn't know that. Just uh, a little weird thing. He married. He was. Uh, he died in 1995. He was married to her from 1982, 1995. I mean, good for him, I guess. <laughs> Did he direct any Murphy Brown episodes? That's what I want to know. <laughs> So what I'm dying. He directed the episode Murphy's Moon. Did okay, okay. Uh, so how many how many jive turkeys do you give it? Oh gosh, I know that's like impossible to do. I absolutely 100% support what Louis Mall is attempting to do, but I'm not. I I can't say that I walked away with it wholly enthusiastic with what it was like. Right. Uh, I, I'll give it. I guess I'm gonna give it four jive turkeys though. Yeah, on um, Letterbox I gave it four. 
So I'm going to continue, continue my four, because it's an it, it's an, it's an impossible film to really rate in that regard. All right, so uh, the listener trivia question, May's trivia question. Should we just read it again? Yeah, if you could just reiterate what. All right, so um, if you remember last episode, we did Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Well, in Robinson Crusoe on Mars, the alien ships, their force fields. Their explosions and their sound effects are all lifted from an earlier science fiction film, which was also directed by Byron Haskin and released by Paramount. What film are they lifted lifted from? We'll reveal that uh, on the next episode, the winner of May's trivia question on the next episode. If you know the answer, send send them to filmjive at gmail.com. We've only received one entry. Was it correct? Yep. Ooh. And the person that won the first one has still not responded to my email about picking a movie. Also, which in... may or may not be a blessing in disguise. I don't know. We, we well, isn't it the hook? Isn't it true that if they don't respond in a certain amount of time, that we'll just review a Playboy, Playboy Playmate of the Year video calendar instead? No, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> no, I thought that was. I thought we were going to review the 1984 video calendar. Mm-mm. How does the video calendar even work? You have to put it in every day just to see what day it is. Hmm. What is the logic in a video calendar, really? Yeah, why why do you have to, like, act like it's a calendar? Why can't you just say it's a, you know... Does it also, along with the picture, have the calendar, the dates in the video? Or is it just the image, like, April, here's this woman? Do people, like, like mark on their television screens, like, cross out days? I also wonder if every single month the playmate's name is the name of the month i don't think there's anyone named like january january oh, jones come on. Come january on. jones of all the months january yeah. I, maybe october well i'm looking i'm looking at imdb's entry for the playboy video playmate calendar 1990 Oof, we've really and there's a host we've hit neil, rock bottom here neil neil ross is the host so somebody sits there and... He's like, on January 12th this year, what do you want to do? We've exhausted this topic. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, that's going to conclude this episode. You can find Andy over at the Stephen Andy Meet Batman podcast, as well as on Letterboxd, where I can be found also. Mm-hmm. Check out the show at filmjive.wordpress.com. You can contact us via filmjive at gmail.com, like our Facebook page. Listen to us through Stitcher Radio and iTunes. We'd very much appreciate an iTunes review. Andy, what are we going to be doing next episode? The next episode, we'll be celebrating the release of the latest Godzilla film with a review of that film accompanied by a discussion of two classic Godzilla films, 1954's Gojira and Mothra vs. Godzilla, also known as Godzilla vs. The Thing from 1964, both from Tahoe Studios. Oh, and we're going to have a special guest on that one, too. Yeah. Uh... Charles Barkley. <laughs> Don't you remember the uh, Reebok ad campaign, Charles Barkley versus Godzilla? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So he knows a thing or two about the big G, so it'll be pretty, uh, pretty informative to have on the show. All right, so thank you for listening. Please join us for the next episode, and until next time, keep on jiving.